I'm not pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for the drive to work coronavirus edition. So I'm using my time at home to talk to people past and present about making magic. So today I have Devin Lowe and we're going to talk about the making of Shards of Alara. Welcome, Devin. Hi, Mark. How's it going? Going great. So I'm excited. I have... I have not talked about Shards of Alara in quite a while, so this is this is exciting for me. Um, this is, like, some sets I talk about a lot. This is one of the sets that I haven't talked about as much, so I'm excited for you and I to dig in deep into into the making of Shards of Alara. Yeah, it's definitely a blast of the past. It's been many, many years since the set came out, but uh, some of the things that it did can still be felt today, so in some ways, the, the, the shadow of the Shards is still with us. Right, so the set came out in October of 2008. Um, so, here, real quickly, I'll do the setup of what the point of it was, and you led the development, so I'm, I'm going to do a little setup, and then we'll talk about development. Um, uh, by the way, Bill Rose, who is currently the VP of R&D, and at time was the VP of R&D, uh, led the design for the set. Um, okay, so the idea of the set was we had done a, a gold set with Invasion that was kind of like, play as many colors as you can, and then we did Ravnica, where we tried to go the opposite direction, which is play two colors, and so we wanted to do another gold set, so Bill's like, well, we've done two. We've done play four or five. I got it. How about three? <laughs> yeah. And people definitely have played three color decks over the years, but it isn't something that's set to really emphasize. There was like a little dash of three color play in uh, Apocalypse in the original Invasion block, like the first multicolored block after Legends, um, because there was like an enemy color theme in Apocalypse. And they were like, oh, if you have both enemy colors, uh, you know, if you're blue and you love red and you love green, then that's a three-color pair. So, uh, like, a handful of uh, three-color cycles in, in Apocalypse. So there never really had been an emphasis on three-color play uh, until now. They've just been spattered with three-color cards. Now, the interesting thing about three-color... I mean, it's very thematic, but something that the audience may or may not be aware of is it's really hard making three-color sets. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today because there's a lot of challenges uh, to making them. So what... Yeah. What do you remember? So you, you were the development lead. So what's your first memory of seeing Shards of Alara? Uh, I remember that um, one of the big challenges was that uh, what does it mean to have three colors mechanically and flavorfully is a tougher challenge than two colors, not just because three is higher than two, but because with two colors, there's like a cogent overlap you can identify between what they do and uh, how they feel. And so you can say that... Um, you know, uh, when green and red overlap, it's it's they both have big monsters in common. So you can sort of emphasize that. You can say that um, when white and blue overlap, they're both defensive. They both fly. They both have good walls, and you can emphasize that. And so, uh, uh, famously, all the two color pairs of magic have uh, mechanical elements that are similar that you can emphasize. But when you take three cards, uh, three colors together, you say, what do red and green and blue all have in common mechanically? It's like, well, that is a Venn diagram that is very tight, right? It's very hard to name a keyword that red and green and blue all have in common of the evergreen keywords. So, and so, so be aware, um, be aware. Um, this set was not. Um, so we have wedge, which is uh, colors to enemies, and we have arcs or shards, uh, colors to allies. This set was about a colors to allies. True. So I, I shouldn't have said red, green, blue. I should yeah. have said red, green, black. Yeah. Um, but even red, green, black, uh, it's hard to name a uh, a, a, a kind of recurring magic effect that is common to red, green, black or, or any other three color arcs. And so the approach that was taken again uh, instead was to uh, identify these worlds that were three color worlds and give them a mechanic that they could emphasize and have that mechanic be resident of red, and green, and black, and then lean into what that mechanic meant. So, so, so let me bring this up real quickly because this happened during design. Um, so Brady Domareth was the creative director at the time, and 
Bill just wanted free color to matter, and I think Brady was one that pitched, what if we had a world where something happened and it broke into five components, and each sub-world, or shard, only had three colors? Like, what would the world look like if only white, blue, and black were the colors, and red and green didn't exist? What would that look like? And so, every color sort of had a world where it was it, it and its allies, and then... Um, we glommed onto that of, of like, oh, that's kind of cool. And what, what you're talking about, we we gave each sort of shard its own identity, L- literally its own world. Yeah, and, and Brady, Brady might have come to this uh, independently. Maybe he already had, but but in, in pondering this and talking to Brady, I remember uh, saying something like, hey, for the uh, green, white, blue world, which is Bant, uh, instead of emphasizing what, what, what would a world look like that had tons of green and white and blue energy uh, and mana sort of spilling out of it, what if we instead said... Uh, what does the world mean that has no death and has no uh, like violent aggression, right? There is no black and red mana influence. Then uh, what if that is the take on the world, the absence of black and red more than the presence of green, white, and blue? Uh, because that sort of gives you fewer elements to focus on instead of trying to incorporate three at once. And so uh, that approach is part of what drove Bant to be a world of uh, honorable duelists, where instead of killing each other in combat they would just have an awesome duel with these brave champions and uh joust or something and then go home and have dinner and they wouldn't actually kill each other and so uh bant is a world of these single champions that uh are excellent sort of one-on-one honorable duelists but they uh are not all about wiping the other person out in giant six-on-six creature battles and so that's part of why their keyword exalted uh says whenever a single creature attacks on your side it gets a bunch of buffs and benefits and uh, stat increases because that emphasis is sort of uh, and that goes with the the honor roll. Set out your champion, you know. Uh, let's 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 have a, a a jolly duel at a picnic and, and then go home. And so, uh, how does that fighting style then contrast with the other worlds that are into violence and death and decay? And that's sort of part of how the shards interact. Right. Another important thing is when you take away uh, the enemy colors. Like for example, take Bant. Bant is kind of a white world, like. If white drove everything, what kind of world would it be? Because its allies are there, and its enemies are absent. And so um, we looked at each world by what's the center color. What's the color that, you know, it's its two allies. And, like, Bant is very much a white-driven world, right? Where honor matters. Where, like, it, it has qualities where it's a very white-centric sort of thing. Um, oh, and I should mention, uh, another thing that happened during the later part of design is we made mini teams where there were three person teams for each world. Were you on any of the mini teams? Um, I don't remember. I think, no, I think I'm supposed to be judging their output to some extent. And so I don't think that I was on the mini teams, but I remember that, uh, it was like three person squads that went out and tried to, uh, look at each shard and make it feel more, uh, awesome in its presentation of a coherent theme. And I think that the, the, the shard keywords I don't think existed at the design handoff, and the shard keywords came out of the mini-teams. Right. The, mini, the, the, right. the mini-teams right, is where we got the... I think the mini-teams happen end of design, beginning development, sort of in that d- divine period, if you will. Um, yeah. And I was... I, I led the Esper team, and I was on the Bant and Naya teams... Um, and then because I, I was head designer, I, I, I peeked my head in the other teams, but I wasn't technically on the other teams. Although I did come up with the keyword for the Black Center team. <laughs> right. Um, Unearthed was my baby. Um, okay, so how do you... Okay, so 
Magic nowadays, like, well, we have lots of worlds at once, you know what I'm saying? We, we do a lot of worlds in a year. But this was kind of different for us. Like, on some level, Shards of Alara isn't one world, it's five different worlds. Right, and that put a lot of pressure on the world building team to come up with five different planes that had different art styles and different, uh, you know, costumes and different uh, subregions in those worlds because a lot of the magic worlds have, like, a couple of green regions and a couple of red regions, a couple of blue regions, and the style, the world building guides do dictate cultures that live in those different regions, right? So there are, like, subtypes of the planes that we visit. But in Shards of Alara, uh, there were five different planes that were very different from each other, the, the, the Shards of the Plane, and then they each had regions within them, right? Like, there are cultures within Band and cultures within Esper uh, that had their own things going on. And so it was a lot of work to do from the costuming and uh, world building side. But I think that they did a good job of keeping uh, certain artists attached to each shard and not using them in any other shards and so you feel a certain i think uh, most look. the artists i think that's how they, i think the way they did it is every artist was put in a shard and yeah, only exactly. did that shard there's no cross-pollination and so uh of the black cards in the set some of them are from grixis and some of them are from uh the other you know esper and the other uh whatever the other black uh, is jund and uh you can tell from looking at the cards even with their monocolor cards and they're not gold cards, which shard they're supposed to come from. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about each. So we, let's start with band because that's what you already talked about band. Um, I remember, so I, the band mini team, if I remember correctly, was me. It was run by Brian Tinsman, and I think Ken Nagel was the third on it. And I remember Brian came up with Exalted, and I, I was actually very negative at first. I thought it was too narrow a hoop to jump through. Um, but then we played with it, and it just took me one play test to go, okay, you're right, this is a cool mechanic. Yeah, it, it's like, uh, Exalted seems like it's sort of like a a, uh, a dumb guy mechanic that's going to be easily thwarted, because attacking one creature a turn to get all your rewards turned on seems like it's going to uh, falter when you hit one regenerator, which was a thing that existed at the time, or uh, one token maker, or, uh, you know, w w one, one bit damage printer or something. And... Uh, Indeed, it is possible to sort of like stymie Exalted with like uh, something going wrong with the one guy, but we were able to make cards that uh, worked around that by saying, hey, we're just going to have fewer powerful regenerators in the set than usual. We're going to have fewer token makers uh, that can make a guy return that can jump your Exalted guy. We're going to have a lot of cards that can give your Exalted guy evasion. We're going to have a lot of evasion guys that are good guys to make your Exalted dude. And you do get to sort of feel smart and uh, feel like you're doing something when you say, hey, I've got my 1-1 one, one blockable guy. Because other guy says whenever a single creature attacks, give it plus one plus one. Another guy says whenever a single creature attacks, give it lifelink plus one plus one. Another guy says whenever a single creature attacks, uh, give it plus one plus one. If it hits him, you draw a card. And so you can sort of like have all these guys cheerleading for this brave, unblockable dude who goes forward. And even though he's a one one on paper, he ends up hitting his four four and draws your card and gets you four life. And you feel like you're you're really doing it. And all the steps along the way, when you're gradually playing at your team and putting each of those components in place, you see your guy getting more awesome, more awesome, more awesome, more awesome. And if they kill the unblockable guy, it's like, all right, well, one of these cheerleader guys can now now be the guy who steps forward and gets the bonuses and can do some of the work. And so it did a good job of kind of like scaling up gradually, giving you big dreams, uh, letting you taste those dreams along the way, and then delivering a big payoff at the end. Um, and as long as we kept some of those things that foil the strategy out of... Um, the format it was pretty effective and it was it, it, i was happy to see that it came back in a later course that that's sort of like a signal that it you know people liked it enough to see it again yeah that's a um, good sign when mechanics come back it means that it was a successful mechanic 
Yeah, and it even sort of like uh, hit and constructed a little bit with the triple color card that says when you attack alone, search your deck for an aura and put it on the guy for free, and you can like put the Eldrazi plus A plus eight and Annihilator enchantment on the guy that attacked alone and really really messed them up. So so that was that, that was a, a hot combo for a, for a hot second. Okay, so next we'll talk. Well, I'm just going to go around the uh, around the color sure, wheel. Sure. So Esper. So this is the team I led. So this was the team of Marks. It was me, Mark Gottlieb, and Mark Globus. Yeah. Um, and so the whole sh- the shtick of Esper was because it was blue centered that they were they were kept trying to improve themselves. Blue's all about perfection, and so uh, and. Blue likes artifacts, and so it's sort of like they were constantly... It's almost like this cyborg society where, like, we can be better by using technology to improve ourselves. Um, and then Gottlieb came up with the idea of, well, what if they were just all artifact creatures? Because in um, Future Sight, I had made uh, a colored artifact creature, which was supposed to be a throw forward to when we went back to um, Mirrodin for New Phyrexia, when New Phyrexia took over Mirrodin. That, that was originally planned for that, uh, but then Gottlieb said, well, what if we do it, you know, do it here? And I'm like, well, okay, it, it makes sense in the world. And so we really leaned into Esper kind of being this artifact-themed set that cared about artifacts, and all its creatures were artifacts. So what kind of what kind of trouble did I give you doing that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, uh, Colored Artifacts were new then. As you said, they had a preview future site, but it was the first set that really did a lot of color artifacts, and it turns out that it makes them like easier to develop than regular artifacts because you can lean into the color wheel more easily, you can uh, more aggressively give them things that are typically restricted to colors, and obviously Magic has since then embraced colored artifacts a lot more and seen them as solving some of the problems that artifact sets and artifacts often have, and so all the recent Magic sets have had colored artifacts, and that has uh, played pretty well, and now they seem pretty natural. And imbuing a artifact with color mana makes sense and, and plays totally fine. And so um, that, that that is a case where uh, a lot of development was about where do you want to sort of scale with uh, cards that say every artifact you have makes this better and to max this out you want 40 or 60 artifacts if you can get them and uh, the sky's the limit versus cards that say you only need one artifact to make this really good because it pumps up one artifact guy you have or regrows one artifact from graveyard but you don't need 60 artifacts to make this good. It's enough to have like six artifacts or something. Um, and so having a spectrum of cards that say you need a threshold of one to make this good versus it scales to a maximum of as many as you want uh, is important to making it uh, feel like you can get some value out of this when you're drafting or playing constructed from only a sprinkling of cards with mechanic versus really committing and, and, and going nuts. So by the way, just a little behind the scenes here, I believe this was the development where the term threshold one is something that R&D uses all the time came from. Well, I think, honestly, I would I'd roll back to Lorwyn because uh, I worked on Lorwyn as well and we used it a lot there talking about tribal matters. Oh, okay. So, m- m- maybe it predated this then. Okay. That, that's, I think, where we started, but we did carry it forward to here. And, like, I also remember with, with Esper, um, uh, writing the word artifact on the type line is kind of like a nice, invisible way to make something relevant. I love in Magic how uh, you can write the word elf on a type line, and it doesn't take any rules complexity, but it makes the card more relevant. People care about elves. Uh, likewise, writing the word artifact on the type line doesn't make the card any more rules complex, but it gives it a cool identity that some players will get really excited about. And so you can have cards that are like relatively simple, but because they're artifacts, people care about them more than they normally would. And it gives you a nice way to kind of cross over the themes uh, to make a single card relevant to multiple archetypes where there's like a four mana flying, two, three artifact creature that uh, regrows an artifact from the graveyard when you play it. 
And uh, that card is great in your artifact deck for getting back your artifacts. There's a lot of artifacts that sacrifice themselves to give you ways to regrow them. Uh, but you might also want that in your Exalted deck because a flying guy is great to layer your Exalted bonuses on to be the guy who carries forward all the plus one, plus ones in the air uh, while you guys are kind of like jeering them off the ground. And so that's very common in Magic sets these days and, and in, in my era back then also of uh, trying to say, hey, what are ways we can take a single card, make it interesting to multiple archetypes and then have people kind of like, uh, you know, value it in different ways in the draft, uh, maybe pivot from concentrating on Exalted to concentrating your artifacts or having a little bit of both. And, uh, you know, just sort of getting more more mileage out of single card. Okay, so the other thing I should point out before we move on uh, from um, Esper was there definitely was some... Like, it's very funny. When we said, let's do all artifacts, my, the mini team thought it was a great idea. Uh, there were people in R&D that were a little skeptical. I mean, we obviously, by the time we got to development, everyone was on board. But it was it was not... This idea of let's just make card artifacts and everyone was on board, it, it didn't quite happen. It required a little bit of convincing people. So, Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And um, there was a lot of questions asked about sort of breaking rules that you've had in the past. Um, but if it's worth it, you should break them. And certainly when the set theme demands it, it's a great time to break it. Uh, I have enjoyed playing the Forgotten Realm set. And for a long time, like Rolling Dice and Magic was like sort of a taboo. But uh, the D&D set's a great time to roll D20s. It makes a lot of sense to the theme. And so that's a great reason to break the rule. Okay, so let's get on to Grixis. Um, I'm trying to remember who the Grixis team was. One, one of my problems is I'm on too many teams for too many years that it, it, it's very easy to blur. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the team members from 13 years ago is, is quite an ask. And I, I'm not sure the audience even like, needs to know like who the team members are 13 years ago. I mean, only because I, like, I just like giving reference to people you know, oh, yeah, when we do no, stuff it, like it's that. It's nice to call them out if, you, if we can. Um, okay, so what happened was, I mean, what happened there, this is my memory of what happened in the team was... Oh, here it is, here it is. I found the list. So, um... Grixis, you were the lead of Grixis. Ah, jacuzzi. <laughs> so you were the lead of Grixis. Excited high time. And uh, Eric Lauer and Brian Tinsman were on your team. Does this That's is it? Right. It is coming back. Uh, it is kind of coming back. Yes. Uh, um, so the keyword is unearth, which is kind of like a flashback for creatures. Um, you could play the creature, it could fight, it could die, and then you could pay a different unearthed mana cost to return that creature to the graveyard, uh, from the graveyard to play for one turn, it gains haste, and then it uh, is exiled at the end of the turn or if it would otherwise be played. So you can sort of get a, a almost like a token version of the card for one more attack on the turn you unearth it. Um, and you can make the unearthed cost way lower than the card's cost to play. You can make it uh, higher than the card's cost to play. You can have a bunch of tricks where when you unearth the creature, it has a uh, enter the battlefield effect or a leaves the battlefield effect to sort of give you uh, even more value than the uh, than the card, you know, uh, just coming back for one more attack. And then you can have sacrifice effects that let you, you know, kill the guys if you can unearth them. You can sacrifice the tokens. There's lots of tricks you can do with unearth. And one of the things I love about magic mechanics is when they're open-ended and they give players a lot of opportunity for creativity about how to use them. And Unearth certainly is that because there are just so many tricks you can do to get extra value at the creature you're unearthing or to throw guys in the graveyard so that they're there, you can unearth them from the graveyard. Um, and so it's really very versatile and it's a good evocation of the shards theme of Grixis being a place where it's full of necromantic energy, uh, it's full of undead. It's full of guys that are always coming back. You know, life energy is always sort of recycled again and again and animating guys again and again. 
um, and it's a place where there is no white mana and there is no green mana, so there's no like actual sort of like circle. There, there, there's no like vitality. It's just endless uh, necromancers getting the same guys back again and again. Okay, so two trivia questions for you. Yeah, see, right. see, see how good your memory is. Okay. Okay. Number one is: Do you remember when I first made on Earth the silly name I gave it when I first made it? It's probably like a flashback reference. It is. Uh, it might be a corpse dance reference, also. Close. Uh, it was Flash Dance of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of was getting there. Uh, <laughs> I, if you give me another second, I would have gotten it because I said flashback, then I said corpse dance, and between yes. flash deck and corpse dance and Mark Rosewater, I would have gotten the flash dance. Yes. So, uh, and here's another trivia question: You guys had a different mechanic before we ended up replacing with Unearth. And that mechanic, we ki- we ended up doing a variant of it later on in another set. Yeah, I, I know what it was. It was whenever creature dies, get a benefit. Yes, yes. Right. And so um, whenever creature dies, get a benefit, you can also do lots of synergies and combos with, um, because lots of ways to like, you know, make, make tokens have them die, or if a guy died and he comes back. And because Grixis is a, is a realm of death, then whenever creature dies, get a benefit, it seems like it matches that. Uh, eventually... We moved that into Jund Moor, and it was sort of like a fight between. I, I, th- I think I kept, probably came out of the mini team pitching whenever Creature Dies get a benefit. Yeah. And then uh, you probably pitched Unearth, and then eventually we said, okay, let's do Unearth for Grixis, and we'll make whenever Guy Dies get a benefit in Jund. Um, and this is kind of spilling over to the Jund topic, but Jund is like a world of carnivores and dinosaurs and savagery and uh, giant monsters that are constantly eating each other. And it's like a predator prey uh, world of, of things eating other things. And so the Jun team said, "Hey, we want to do Devour, which is when you play this creature, uh, sacrifice any number of other creatures. Every twenty sacrifice, put X plus one encounters on this guy. So you can play a dragon as Devour three, sacrifice any number of little uh, goblins, and the dragon gets three plus one plus one encounters for every goblin you sacrifice. And it's like the a good example of." giant thing devours little things and gets a benefit and it is a carnivore and it eats the prey and uh you sort of want to make decks have some prey in them that are little guys that are easy to play or make tokens or when they die you get a benefit and then the giant dragon that eats them all and it gets a payoff and so um uh my concern with devour was uh you could build a deck that has a cool moment where you have like little little prey guys that are cheap and give you benefits to die and a giant thing that eats them but you don't want to put like a ton of devour guys in your deck because when the first carnivore eats all little prey and gets a bunch of bonuses, and you got a second carnivore in your hand that uh, wants to eat a bunch of prey and get a bunch of bonuses, what, what's he going to do, right? Like, your second carnivore doesn't have a lot to do if all you have on the board is one giant carnivore that already ate everything and, and no more things to eat. And so it's tough to make a deck that's like, 11 guys that have Devour on it because it's not that fun to draw your, like, 11th Devour guy. Right, some mechanics feed on the same resource. Like, Del- Delve right. has a similar issue where, like, like the the second one is, is limited because the first one used the resource... Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, it, yeah, with, it's Delve, same thing. You want to put a bunch of the cards in the graveyard and then Delve to exile the cards in the graveyard to get a benefit, but then you already exiled them all, so it's tough to do it again unless you jump through the hoops to feed it again. Um, and, and I often had this criticism back in the day of, like, I remember uh, the Lorwyn elemental mechanic was, like, um, activated abilities. Uh, all the elementals had, had mana activated abilities. So they said, spend five mana, colon, do something awesome. Then another elemental said, spend four mana, colon, do something awesome. Another elemental said, spend six mana, do something awesome. And my complaint was, 
or my concern was, hey, you only have so much mana. Having three elementals on the board and they each have a different activated ability uses four or five or six mana isn't good because you can't spend your mana to feed all three of these guys. It's like worse than a deck where you just had one of them and then the other two guys just spend their power points on being a guy that had no activated ability. Um, eventually we did do that for thematic reasons. We just sort of like uh, tried to find enough ways to... Uh, give you triggers on whether you spent mana activated abilities that, you know, paid you off for it. Um, and other ways to give you enough mana to make it worthwhile. But, but, but in this case also, I was concerned that having a lot of Devour cards in a deck would not be good. Whereas having a lot of when a guy dies triggers in a deck is good because you can put seven guys on the board that say when a guy dies, get a benefit, have one guy die, and they all go off. So John did, by the way, so the, we, the, the cards in John do have a bunch of trigger, death triggers. Correct. So, so, um, so we, we kept, we kept like, three to five of them as single cards unkeyworded, and we did ultimately keep Devour after many debates on the grounds that it's just so thematically awesome and fun to have a giant dragon that eats a bunch of things and if you tell people, hey, here's what John's about a giant uh, beast that eats a bunch of things and gets huge and some of them also said, hey uh, get a reward based on how big my power is so, right, this big fungus guy, there's sort of like a, a, a force, a, a verdant force that says when I come to play, devour three, eat a bunch of tokens, get a bunch of plus one plus one counters, and then every upkeep, uh, free plus one plus one counter on me, like make another valid or something. So he gives you more food for the next card board, trying to sort of solve that problem I alluded to. Yeah, I think we um, thought it was just flavorful. I mean, I, I think we knew that we couldn't do tons of devour, but that we thought it was super flavorful is what we ended up with. Right, and so 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 we kept it because it's great at communicating that it's a realm of carnivores. We just didn't put on that many cards. Like I'm I'm pretty sure it's on fewer cards and set than any of the other keywords from the shards. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. There isn't uh, that's a way to sort of like get people out of the trap of putting too many devour cards in the deck because they just aren't that many devour cards. And the ones we kept were the like splashy fun ones, and they're pretty high rarity. We don't have that many common devour guys. Um, and so that's the way we solved it. And the Death Trigger guys are still there, so we're sort of doing the workmanlike job of, of triggering things. And it worked, it worked with guys, Devour, right? When you devoured yeah, your exactly. guys, then it triggered the Death Triggers. Right. And so you can make your Devour deck that has some Prey guys, some tokens, some Death Trigger guys, and then a few Devour guys, and have that uh, a few moments of Devour guy eating it, and all the triggers go off. Right. Um, but we, and we had a lot of Death Triggers, right? Guys. We had a lot of Death Triggers, so that things dying made things happen, so... Yeah, and the Death Trigger guys are also good with sacrifice effects and the unearthed stuff. Um, so, so that that works well. So before we move off, John, real quickly. So John, Bill Rose was the leader of the mini team, and Mark yeah. Globus and Mike Turian were that. That was the red the red team. Right. So and, not. And I, I can remember talking about like uh, Devour with with Bill and all that stuff. Okay, so let's move on to the last team, Naya. The green center team. So Ken Nagel was the lead because Ken loves green, uh, and yeah. I and Mike Turian were the rest of the team. Yeah, Ken Nagel often also famously loves like giant giant creatures, he and does. that is indeed the theme of Nia <laughs> is, is five power matters, uh, rewarding you for creatures that have five power and giving you a lot of guys that have five power, and so um, that is a good theme that Wizards has used like ten thousand times since then uh, in like four power matters and five power matters, and your team has six power matters incarnations, um, and they all play pretty well, and it's nice that um, much like Artifact, they. Uh, rely on making a part of the card that is like kind of uh, free in terms of rules complexity have a mechanical synergy that is cool, right? And so having cards that say, hey, I care about elves means you suddenly care about all the cards that happen to be elves. Having cards say, I reward you for power, creatures of power five or greater uh, makes you suddenly care more about random idiots that have power five or greater. And that's a nice way to make you say, ooh, I've got three of these. This, this five power matter card really good. I've got three, I've got four, I've got five, I've got seven creatures of power five or greater um, without needing to write words on the card saying, uh, whenever a creature dies, comma, do this effect, right? And so I, I love opportunities to get uh, 
players interested in cards that uh, have a certain trait without having to have rules complexity to make them care about it. Um, the five power matters team is also a great opportunity to just like have a bunch of giant dudes uh, at common that have five power, including in colors that don't really have them. Like white is very uh, does not is famously does not have five power creatures at common, right? Like I think there was like one at common that had five five power greater. Yeah, white, white white doesn't have that big creatures at common usually. Right, exactly. And so Naya was like an, a, 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 a thematic based time to break the rules once again and give white some. Uh, commons of five power greater because it's nigh and it's a land of giant dinosaurs and monsters and of course it would have uh, giant creatures in a way that's sort of like unusual. So, um, so we're, we're talking about some criticism. So I'm, I'm going to throw some criticism at Naya. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the Teamer clan of Cons of Tarkir, uh, you can see that we we did the same theme again, but we made two changes. Yeah. Uh, one is that we made it four and greater rather than five or greater. Because yeah, five is just, it was a little hard, especially a common, to get to the five. It, it, it's audaciously high. Um, and the second thing we did is we named it. <laughs> we made an ability right. word, which, uh, looking back, it was really our, I mean, I guess Esper also kind of didn't have a name. Um, but it was it was kind of weird that three of them had clear names and that uh, Naya kind of like was a theme, but it wasn't named. I, we should have named it. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember we had ability words in the game yet back then. It might have been that this is one of the sets that sort of like told us we should have ability words. We got tons of feedback saying, "Why didn't Naya get mechanic?" Grixis is unearthed. No, we had a, we had ability words. Threshold was an ability word. That's Odyssey. Mm, I guess that's right. But threshold, like, um, it was like threshold comma do something. It was like threshold colon this guy gets plus four plus four. Yeah. And threshold meant something, right? Like you didn't just say. Did yeah, that's a good question. When we when do we do just a straight ability word? I mean, I guess threshold later was labeled an ability word, but maybe it wasn't thought of it that way when we made it. Yeah, like at the time, I, 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 the original printing of of Werebear, um, I, I, I'm looking it up now. I, I, I okay. don't know. Well, anyway, okay. Yeah. So so so, so Werebear <laughs> says threshold hyphen or m dash where because plus three plus three and then in parentheses it says you have threshold as long as seven more cards in your graveyard and so threshold did mean something and the reminder text told you what it was okay. but i think the magic had not yet discovered the technology of an ability word that meant nothing except to give you flavor information right and that is good technology it's it's super good to communicate hey here's what we're going for this is supposed to mean this i, I love that the, the forgotten realm set has uh you know tons of these flavor words labeling um what the abilities are supposed to do and saying this is, you know, cure wounds and this is uh, gentle repose and stuff on the abilities because it definitely helps you feel the DB theme there. And, and, and nowadays, with a Naya theme, we would certainly say ferocious or whatever. And I guess obviously Cardstrike here did that, as you said. So um, it, it is smart to tell people, hey, this is what we're doing here, uh, even if it's not a mechanical relevance. So I, I, but my desk isn't too far away. So I, I, uh, I we got we to wrap up here. What are your final thoughts, sort of, on Shards of Alara? Just all, like looking back. What what do you, what did you think of sort of the set as a whole? It was the first time that we did three colors, and I think that pulled off the theme of uh, three different worlds pretty well. Um, I think that saying the absence of black and red is what makes the band world have meaning is a cool way to approach it. Um, it was also like the big resurgence of Nicobolus as a big villain because he uh, was the villain of the Shards Valara storyline, and he was the one that sort of like united all the planes and sort of tried to seize the power of the Conflux and. Um, there's an awesome Nicobolus Planeswalker in that block. Uh, it was the second block that ever had Planeswalkers, and I think those went pretty well. Like, Elspeth 
the first white four mana one was there. The first Tezzeret was there. The first Nicobolas was there. Uh, Lauren was the first Planeswalker block, and this was the second Planeswalker block. And the Planeswalkers, like, for such a new mechanic that's so hard to balance, uh, went pretty well. And they were good in limited and constructed um, pretty much right off the bat. It was so the that, first that was multicolor, cool. the first multicolor Planeswalkers. That's also true. Um, but even just like the second block of Planeswalkers, still pretty early, and and they they were pretty good, pretty good hits. Um, looking back at the set, uh, there are many things that Magic just has learned as as a overall game since then. Right, it's been thirteen years. Um, but there, it, it used to be uh, part of our dogma that you had to have like a bunch of bad cards. Uh, I, I I know you've written many articles on the topic of bad cards, and there's many kinds of bad cards. But back then, part of the dogma was you have to have a bunch of just like junky stat cards at common, and Magic doesn't do that anymore. That's definitely a positive element. Like, there's definitely a bunch of blatantly awful statted creatures uh, for the standards of the day where um, uh, this guy's like a... What's this guy's name? There's a guy who's like a, a four-mana black creature. I, I, I guess it's, it's a four-mana red creature um, that is 2-1. So if you issue a skeleton, it's a four-mana 2-1. For this price, you get the ability two mana, comma, discard a card, colon, regenerate the issue to skeleton. And regeneration is like this guy, if he would die, instead he doesn't die and he taps. Um, but that is just a, a, a terror bad rate. Even for the, 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 the weaker creature curves of time, it's like this guy is just, just, just abysmally terrible. And yeah. at the time, that was like you had to have at least one like very bad static creature in common. The rationale, I think, was like, eh, beginning players need to learn that some cards are better than others, and they need to like feel smart about cutting cards in their deck that are bad. So we'll put these bad cards in, and we want to have a certain number of playables, limited decks, and so we'll uh, give them some some clunkers to uh, be bad and, and not make their decks. But in retrospect, I think that was that that was a, a bad part of the dogma. It's good the magic has ejected that, and there are no magic creatures printed these days that are like routinely as terrible as these like terribly statted uh, guys that we put in the sets back then. Uh, we we only did occasionally. It was only a few. Uh, Part of the reason we had them also is you could like feel smart if you use the bad card and still won a game against someone. You could like kind of humiliate them by beating them with the issue of skeleton, or like tell some stories your friends about at the time you use the issue of skeleton, or say, "Oh, in this case, the issue of skeleton is actually good," or make your be issue of skeleton deck, or be the guy that collects three hundred issue of skeletons, getting all your friends that don't want the issue of skeleton. There are things that it did right, but it wasn't worth it in retrospect. I mean, the one thing when I look back at Shards of Alara, um, it really put. Like, the idea of making a three-color set work, the idea of we can push kind of in a direction we hadn't pushed before. Um, like, one of the famous lessons of Shards of Alara is we just didn't put enough color fixing in. Um, like, we put more we put more than we'd ever had, but it just was, it still wasn't enough. Yeah, um, and, and, and part of it is that the, the rate on the color fixing wasn't good enough. Like, um, famously... Uh, Ravnica, the first Ravnica block, had tons of awesome color fixing because it had a cycle of common Karoos in every color, meaning uh, a land that said, come to play tapped. When you play this, you must return another land you control to your hand, uh, and it taps your two colors of uh, mana from that guild, so uh, it taps for black and green. So, uh, I don't know if you know these lands or not, but, but basically, it, it's like, a, it's like a, a land that uh, is worth two lands. You, you play planes in turn one, and turn two, you play this tap land that creates white and blue, two mana, and you turn the planes to your hand, and on your next turn, you play the planes again. And so this card, this this this, this land I'm describing is like a very powerful land because it produces two mana. You gotta, uh, you know, do some work to get it online, but it produces two mana, and it's two uh, colors of mana for your guild. 
And so there's just like an extraordinarily powerful color fixer. Um, if you're, if your opening hand is like one land in one of these Karoo lands, you're in great shape. And, uh, it's a very high power level land so much that they don't really make these anymore. Uh, and the artifact mana they had back then was a cycle of, uh, common signets that said two mana, Demir signet, uh, come into play untapped, I believe, and pay one comma tap this artifact and make black blue. And so it, 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 it it washed your mana and created mana in a very efficient way. I'm not describing this very well, but but Demir Signet ultimately taps to make a mana and washes your mana to make black and blue. And this is like very, very powerful. And in contrast, the Alara mana fixers were these obelisks that uh, cost three to play and say tap, create white, blue, or black. And that's the whole text. And a three mana artifact mana fixer is like way, 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 way worse than a two mana artifact mana fixer because by the time you have three lands, you kind of like needed to have your colors online already. And a time with three lands, you don't really want to be like tapping all your lands to play more cards that just make mana. It's kind of like too late for all that, you know what I mean? And so the obelisk are just like so much worse than the overpowered signets, and the panoramas were pretty good, but so much worse than the Karoos that even having the same number of slots on mana fixing as Ravnica, the overall power of mana fixing was way, way worse. People didn't even want to play obelisks, whereas they were dying to play signets. So it, it yeah, I mean, it's it, it, a little long winded, but you know, it definitely, I mean? it definitely taught us. I mean, one of the things now is. I mean, I think Shards of Alara really paved the way for three-color sets. And and obviously, you know, like, Kansa Tarkir learned a lot from looking at Shards of Alara. And um, I, I think whenever I look back at old sets, I always sort of say, like, what were the lessons we learned? You know, what what new ground did it pave? And I think the Shards of Alara was pretty bold and did a lot of cool things. Like, it was, it was for example, us doing factions, you know, like, pushing... Like, we had, had done Ravnica, but this was us trying to do, you know, a different kind of factioning. And so I, people always ask, will we ever go back to Alara? And I think there's a better chance we will than we never will. Um, so I, I hope one day to go back to I, I like Alara. I like the shards. My, my, my biggest problem with the block is we, we took away what made the world awesome, which was the shards. And, like, in the story, the, the shards started coming together. So, um, yeah. And, like, it is a fun moment in the story to think of, like, these different shards encountering each other and just have their minds blown, where if you're from Bant and used to World of Honorable Combat where no one ever dies, and you uh, get shoved into Grixis, where it's like a world of necromancy, where everything is dead, everyone's killing each other, there's all these ghoulish horrors that will like rip your head off. It's like, that would be quite a shock. And uh, to the Jund guys that have never encountered like logic and knowledge and smart people, and they suddenly run into Esper, and the Esper people are like, you know, running circles around them with all their tricks and blue cards that would be pretty mind-blowing too so it, it's fun to think of those worlds colliding i mean it um, made sense in the story it's just so but anyway I, by the way i, I we got it we gotta wrap this up because I'm, I'm at yeah. my desk um but it was it was uh shares a lot is fun to look back at there's a lot of cool things there's cool things we tried there's things maybe we could have done a little bit better but uh that's true of anything when you look back in time like you know it, it paved the way for what came after it but you know there were successes and failures and you learned from both those so yeah, it's all, it's, all, it's all stepping stones to to where we're going. So anyway, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, Devin, it was a lot of fun. I like reminiscing with you, looking back. Uh, so thank you for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, I love the podcast, and we have to be on again sometime. Uh, thanks for having me. So to everybody else, uh, I, I can see my desk, so we all know what that means. I mean, this is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So once again, thanks to Devin for joining us. And I'll see all of you guys next week. Bye-bye.